Wealth Attraction Research. Wealth Attraction Research, W-A-R, War, Manipulating Prices. Wealth Attraction Research, W-A-R, War, Manipulating Prices. You're listening to Wealth Attraction Research, W-A-R, War, Manipulating Prices, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Spreaker Social Podcasting, Wisdom Social Audio Inc., and Colin Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with Uniquilibrium and ExercisingYourMind.com. This edition's reading focus comes to us from The Little Book of Economics, and How Many Works, both published by Dorling Kinsley, a compilation and a collaboration of various different contributors in the subjects of finance, money, economics. This will be just under an hour, if I'm lucky, so I can get out of the Barnes & Nobles and then get back to my other work, the other business of being me. That's all I'll say about that. So this title, Manipulating Prices, comes from both books. The, interestingly enough, they line up pretty well. The, from a little book of economics, the chapter, this section is called Prices Come from Supply and Demand, Supply and Demand, and from how many works, it's manipulating the stock market. So... I'm pretty sure that both these are going to have some similar features as they are indeed related. So from the little book of economics, prices come from supply and demand. In context, the focus, we have theories of value. The key thinker that will be highlighted here is Alfred Marshall, born 1842, died 1924. Before his time, at around 1300, Islamic scholar Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, Taymiyyah, sorry, Tamiya, publishes a study of the effects of supply and demand on prices. In 1691, English philosopher John Locke argues that commodity prices are directly influenced by the ratio of buyers to sellers. 1817, British economist David Ricardo argues that prices are influenced mainly by the cost of production. 1874, French economist Leon Walras studies the equilibrium or balance in markets. And after that time, in 1936, British economist John Maynard Keynes identifies economy-wide total demand and supply. All right, so a few key figures here. This particular section is a little bit longer than the others, but thankfully not too much longer. There, there, it's four pages instead of two. And let's take a look at what we have before I... Well, first, I've already heard of uh, at least David Ricardo, Leon Walrus, and John Maynard Keynes. So they're all economists, two British, one French. Let's see what it says here. It says supply and demand. 
are among the fundamental building blocks of economic theory. Definitely that is so. That's probably what you learn in basic economics classes if you've ever taken them. The interplay between the amount of a product available on the market and the eagerness of consumers to buy that product creates the foundation of markets. Hmm. So the interplay between the amount of a product available and the eagerness of consumers to buy that product creates the foundation of markets. All right. Let's take a look at what that looks like here. Well, I have a graph. You can't see that if you're not on column. But uh, let's see. We have the graph. So this graph is known as the Marshallian Cross. I guess that must be named after, didn't I read somebody here named Marshall? Yeah, Alfred Marshall. So this graph known as the Marshallian Cross shows the relationship between supply and demand. The point at which the supply and demand curves intersect gives us the price. All right. Which is also labeled as equilibrium and price equilibrium. Mm. And quantity, so you got quantity equilibrium and price equilibrium. Supply and demand, all right. It's good to see that visually. The importance of supply and demand in economic relationships was studied as long ago as the Middle Ages. The medieval Scottish scholar Duns Scotus recognized that a price must be fair to the consumer, but must also take into account the cost incurred in production and therefore be fair to the producer. I think this is a part that a lot of people miss out when they complain about prices. Yes, there is a lot of markup, but how else would they make a living? Just like how you go to work and have a job and get paid wages, well, business owners have to make profits because that's their job, right? Subsequent economists studied the effects of supply-side costs on eventual prices, and economists such as Adam Smith, there he goes again, Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, uh, and economists such as Adam Smith and David Ricardo linked the price of a product to the labor required in its production. This is called the classical labor theory of value, which I think still should be factored into things like that. They are in dollar amounts, but um, those are a little bit different from the, the labor theory of value, at least from my understanding of Adam Smith, which... I will admit is not uh, not that great. Continuing, in the 1860s, new economic theories began to develop, challenging these ideas under the banner of the neoclassical school. This thought, or this school of thought, introduced the theory of marginal utility, where the satisfaction a customer gains or loses from having more or less of a product affects both demand and price. British economist Alfred Marshall joined the analysis of supply with the new neoclassical approach to demand. Marshall saw that supply and demand work in tandem to generate the market price. His work was important because he illustrated the varying dynamics of supply and demand in short-term markets, such as those for perishable goods, as opposed to long-term ones, such as for gold. He applied mathematics to economic theories and produced the Marshallian Cross, a graph showing the supply and demand as crossing lines. The point at which they intersect is the equilibrium price, 
which they which perfectly balances the needs of supply, the producer and demand, the consumer. All right, that makes sense so far. Basic economics, right? All right, basic economic theory, foundational markets. Continuing, the law of supply. The amount of products a firm chooses to produce is determined by the price at which it can sell them. If the assorted costs of production, labor, materials, machines, and premises amount to more than the market is willing to pay for the product, production will be seen as unprofitable and be reduced or stopped. If, on the other hand, the market price for the item is substantially more than the cost. Huh. If, on the other hand, the market price for the item is substantially more than the cost of production, the company will seek to expand production to make as much profit as possible. The theory assumes that the firm has no influence over the market, over the market price, and must accept what the market offers. For example, if the cost of producing a computer amounts to $200, production will be unprofitable if the market price of the computer drops under $200. I would also say, of course, it's obvious if it is equal to $200, right? That, there's no profit there. But equally canceling out. Conversely, if the market price of the computer is $1,000, the firm producing it will seek to produce as many as possible to maximize profits. That, that information there may cause me to just think, I've seen laptops for a couple hundred bucks, right? And uh, if they're like $200, can you imagine how little it costs to produce them? Interesting. Computers for 200 bucks. For some decent ones, too. I've seen some touchscreens one, ones. All right, so the law, okay, yes. So the law of supply can be visualized using a supply curve where every point of the curve provides the answer to how many units a firm will be willing to sell at a particular price. Furthermore, there must be a distinction between fixed and variable costs. All right, there's a, there's a little flowchart of bubbles here. Let's see what the first one says. Producers supply goods to the market to meet consumer demands, which goes... Then next, if goods are not supplied in large enough quantities to meet demand, prices rise. Next, supply is increased. Producers make more to satisfy demand. Next, however, at some point, supply surpasses demand. At this point, prices begin to fall. Then, until the market settles at a price that balances supply and demand. In conclusion, Prices come from supply and demand, which is the title of this chapter in the Little Book of Economics. I'm going to continue here. Furthermore, there must be a distinction between fixed and variable costs. The above example assumes the example that I just read with those bubbles going one to the next that will flow. Uh, the above example assumes that production can be increased with the unit cost of production remaining stable. The production can be increased with the unit cost of production remaining stable. However, this is not the case. If 
the computer factory. Oh, no, he's not talking about it. He's talking about the computer price. Huh? It looks, his bubbles are sitting right on top of that. Cold reading. All right, so, yeah, so if the, the above example assumes that production be, can be increased with the unit cost of production remaining stable. However, this is not the case. If the computer factory can produce only 100 machines per day, yet there is demand for 110, the producer must judge whether it makes sense to open a completely new factory with the vast additional costs this incurs, or whether it makes more sense to sell the computers at a slightly higher price to reduce demand to only 100 per day. The nature of demand. Well, that makes sense, right? Nothing, nothing uh, too complicated so far, right? I'm, I'm, I'm understanding it, so you must be understanding it. <clears throat> the nature of demand. The law of demand sees matters from the viewpoint of the consumer rather than the producer. When the price of a good increases, demand inevitably falls, except for essential goods such as medicine. This is because some consumers will no longer be able to afford the item or because they decide that they can gain more enjoyment by spending the money elsewhere. Using the same example as previously, if the computer costs only $50, the volume of sales will be high since most people will be able to afford one. On the other hand, if it costs $10,000, the demand will be very low since only the very wealthy will be able to afford them. As prices increase, demand falls. There is a limit to how low prices can fall to stimulate demand. If the price of the computer falls to below $5, everyone will be able to afford to buy one, but nobody needs more than two or three computers. Consumers realize that their money is better spent on something else, and demand flattens out. Price is not the only factor that affects demand. Consumer tastes and attitudes are also a major factor. Yeah, I know that's for sure because there's a whole bunch of stuff that I do not buy at all just because of the fact that, um, well, it doesn't make sense to me, right? I don't buy a lot of the name brands that most people do because I think that they're stupid. Not that the people are stupid. I think that the brands are stupid, like Nike and Adidas and those things that people go crazy about because basketball players or some other person that they've seen very oftentimes that you call celebrities are wearing them or like all that other crazy shit that people like to wear. But I digress. Let me just continue reading before I rant too much. Less not I rant. Price is not the only factor that affects demand. Consumer taste and attitudes are also a major factor. If a product becomes more fashionable, the whole demand curve shifts to the right. right so wait a minute, let me get this curve. What are you talking about? Shifts the demand curve shifts to the right. Oh, so demand goes up. Yes. Okay. So consumers demand more of the product at each price. Given the static position of the supply curve, this drives up the price. Because consumer taste can be manipulated through techniques such as advertising. What did Noam Chomsky call that? Uh, manufacturing consent. 
right? So because consumer taste can be manipulated through techniques such as advertising, producers can influence the shape and position of the demand curve. And you didn't think that you could be hypnotized, did you? Don't you know that that's what advertising and marketing is to a large extent? Uh, the definition of hypnosis. By the way, if you didn't know, I have a degree in clinical hypnosis from what I think is the best college of hypnotherapy in the world, the Hypnosis Motivation Institute. Uh, I do not earn any money from them. Uh, so by saying this, I just like to pro promote them. You can find them at hypnosis.edu. That's right. They're recognized by the Department of Education. And they now have an associate's degree program along with their professional a clinical hypnotist program as well. Hypnosis.edu. Uh, let's take a look. Yes, so because consumer tastes can be manipulated through techniques such as advertising, producers can influence the shape and position of the demand curve. Let's see, there's a quote here. It says, wait, let me see, where's Alfred Marshall from again? Is he British? Uh, I don't know. I'm just going to assume he is. Oh, yeah, he is. When the demand price is equal to the supply price, the amount produced has no tendency either to be increased or to be diminished. It is in equilibrium. Alfred Marshall. Continue. Finding equilibrium. So, while consumers will always seek to pay the lowest price they can, producers will look to sell at the highest price they can. When prices are too high, consumers lose interest and move away from the product. Conversely, if prices are too low, it no longer makes financial sense for the producer to continue to make the product. A happy medium must be reached. An equilibrium price acceptable to both consumer and producer. This price is found at the point where the supply curve intersects the demand curve, producing a price at which consumers are happy to pay and producers are happy to sell. By the way, that demand curve he's talking about is on this graph known as the Marshallian cross. Because what did Marshall do? Uh, he applied mathematics to economic theories and uh, produced the Marshallian cross. All right. This price is found at the point where the supply curve intersects the demand curve, producing a price at which consumers are happy to pay and producers are happy to sell. Yeah, good. All right. Many factors complicate these relatively simple laws. What many factors complicate these many simple laws? The position and size of the market are crucial in price determination, as is time. The price at which producers are happy to sell is not just influenced by the cost of production. For instance, consider a market stall selling fresh produce. The farmer arrives having already paid for the costs of production, buying the seeds, the labor involved in planting and harvesting the crop, and his transportation to the market. He knows that to make a profit, he must sell each apple for a dollar and twenty cents. Therefore, at the start of the day, he decides to market his apples at a dollar and twenty cents. If his sales are going well, he may feel he can make more money and raise his price to $1.25. This may cause a slowdown in sales, but if he manages to sell his entire stock, he will be happy. However, if the end of the day is nearing and he finds that he still has 
quite a few apples left. He might decide to drop his price to $1.15 to avoid being left with an excess of apples that are likely to rot before his next chance to sell them. In this example, the costs of production are fixed and the urgency of selling the crop is the pressing factor. This is useful in illustrating the differences between short and long-term markets. The farmer will decide how many apples to plant for his next harvest based on his sales this time. And in this way, the market should eventually arrive at equilibrium. Okay, note, I don't think that's gonna happen. I've been really looking at a lot of stuff that shows that the that history or the past is not always a good indicator of what's gonna happen next. Except in, well, there's some great cases, you know, that foundation for the study of cycles with Dewey and Dakin, who basically uh, used, well, they didn't use, they actually reverse engineered when they were looking at cycles, especially economic cycles. They found uh, periodic ups and downs, you know, booms and busts that just so happened to be in alignment with specific celestial objects in the sky. Constellations, anyone? Astrology? Um, and, you know, also uh, Radio Corporation of America found that when planets were aligned at 0, 90, 180, and 270 degrees from each other, there were degradations in radio signals um, each and every single time. So that is a fascinating little tidbit right there. But uh, let me continue before I get off target here a little bit too more. All right, so let's continue with this. Oh, yeah, Foundation for the Study of Cycles. But back to the book. Right. In this example, the cost of production are fixed. The urgency of selling a crop is a pressing factor. This is useful in illustrating the difference between short and long-term markets. The farmer will decide how many apples to plant for his next harvest based on his sales this time. And in this way, the market should eventually arrive at equilibrium. I was about to say unequilibrium. Um, the, the farmer's market is also limited by distance. There is only a certain radius within which it makes economic sense to sell his products. For instance, the cost involved in shipping his apples overseas would make his prices uncompetitive with domestic producers. This means that, to some extent, the farmer is at liberty, liber, liberty, the farmer is at liberty to set his prices slightly higher because his consumers cannot travel to seek alternatives. You know, this, just that thing just brought me right back to the sentence that said, because consumer taste can be manipulated through techniques such as advertising, producers can influence the shape and position of the demand curve. Yeah, the, this means that to some extent the farmer is at liberty to set his prices slightly higher because his consumers cannot travel to seek alternative alternatives captive audience or, or captive consumers right that's what that is i sip loudly the opposite scenario to the fruit farmer is the market for a global commodity such as uh, oh i don't have my coins with me i was going to drop the coin all right so the opposite scenario to the fruit farmer is the market for a global commodity such as gold. In this long-term market, the holder of the gold is under no time pressure to sell. He can be confident that it will maintain its value, which is questionable to me. Why the 
front porch does gold hold its value like that? I mean, look, yes, electronics, so on and so forth. But it's easier to mine than silver. Well, you know, once a long time ago, you know, there, most of the uh, empires back in the day used to, um, you know, the rulers were said to be gods themselves or descendants of gods, right? And then they got in the middle of, tr of bartering and trade um, because people were doing it. They were saying that this cowrie shell or this, you know, ball of dung or whatever it was they were exchanging uh, represented so many, represented or expressed so many units of, of uh, wheat or, or a number of cows. But then, you know, these god men and women, some of them, uh, decided that they were going to be the ones who literally coined the medium of exchange. And so they made coins of gold and silver because they were shiny and pretty. And uh, they, you know, people think that it's because they're rare, the metals are not. It's, they, they were made rare through violence. People weren't allowed to, just like how at certain points in time, like for example in China, people weren't allowed to wear red and yellow. And then in other places in Europe, people weren't allowed to wear purple unless they were nobility or royalty. Right, so people were actually stopped from, and even in the United States a while ago, did you know that it was illegal for people to, for individuals to own gold? <gasps> you don't say. Yeah, it's true, it's true. <clears throat> All right, the opposite scenario to the fruit farmer is the market for a global commodity such as gold. In this long-term market, the holder of the gold is under no time pressure to sell. He can be confident that it will maintain its value. The larger the market and the more widespread the knowledge of the market, the more likely it is that the commodity has found its equilibrium price. This makes this makes any small change in market price significant, and any change will spark a flurry of buying and selling. Although these examples introduce further complexity into the market, they hold true to the basic rule that suppliers will only sell at a price they find acceptable, while buyers will only buy at a price they find reasonable. Which reminds me of the book, The Psychology of Money, where he says that, you know, wait, let me not mix it up. But basically, reasonable is greater than rational. Right? Is that it? Let me see. I think that's chapter 11. Reasonable is greater than rational. Yep, chapter 11. Reasonable is greater than rational. Rational. And it says, the subtitle says, Aiming to be mostly reasonable works better than trying to be coldly rational. Continuing. The examples all relate to a market in which physical goods are traded, but supply and demand is relevant throughout economic reasoning. The model is applicable to the labor market, for instance. Here, the individual is the supplier selling his or her labor. And employers are the consumers looking to buy labor as cheaply as possible. Minimum wage, anyone? That's right. People are trying to get a uh, high-paid job. But they don't want that. They don't want that shit. 
right? So it's employers, right here, and the individual supplier selling his or her labor, and employers and consumers looking to buy labor as cheaply as possible. Money markets are also analyzed as a supply and demand system, with the interest rate acting as the price. Hmm. Interesting. Money markets are also analyzed as a supply and demand system with the interest rate acting as a price. So I guess then if more people are wanting to take out loans, the interest rates would go higher, right? And if people, more people were just saving their money, the interest rates would go down. Right. Because they don't, as much as they can withhold, they, the bankers, or banksters, uh, can withhold um, money from you and make more for themselves, of course, right? Every, that's what everybody's trying to do, self-interest. Hmm. But uh, could that be the cause of all suffering if I modified that a little bit, like in Buddhism, right? The cause, the cause of all suffering is uh, purely selfish desire. <clears throat> you can remedy that. But the Eightfold Path. All right, so... Uh, economist, continuing, economist called Marshall's work partial equilibrium. And, oh, yeah. Economist called Marshall's work partial equilibrium analysis because it shows how a single market reaches equilibrium or balance through the forces of supply and demand. However, an economy is made up of many different interacting markets. The question of how all of these can come together in a state of general equilibrium is a complex problem that was analyzed by Leon Walras in the 19th century. Yay, done. But we have a focus on Mr. Alfred Marshall. All right, Alfred Marshall, let's take a look. Born in London, England in 1842, Alfred Marshall grew up in the borough of, Clap what? of Clapham before going to Cambridge University on a scholarship. There, he studied mathematics and then metaphysics, concentrating on ethics. His studies led him to see economics as a practical means of implementing his ethical beliefs. In 1868, Marshall took up a lectureship specially created for him in moral science. His interest in this continued until a visit to the U.S. in 1875 made him focus more on political economy. Marshall married Mary Paley, his former student, in 1877 and became principal of University College, Bristol, UK. In 1885, he returned to Cambridge as a professor of political economy, a post he held until his retirement in 1908. From about 1890 until his death in 1924, Marshall was considered the dominant figure in British economics. Cool, he had a degree in metaphysics. Like Aristotelian, Aristotelian metaphysics. As a matter of fact, Aristotle wrote a book called *The Metaphysics*, in which ethics was a one of those things in there. All right, what was his? What were what were Alfred Marshall's key works? The uh, the in 1879, *The Economics of Industry* with Mary Paley Marshall, and in 1890, *Principles of Economics*, and in 1919, *Industry* and well, there you go. That's uh, a little book of economics where we uh, learn a little bit about uh, prices come from supply and demand. Supply and demand. All right. I'm just 31 minutes in and almost done here. And finishing it off with the most boring book of them all in my economic studies here. 
uh, is uh, how money works. Because you can't see the pretty pictures. I can. But it's still boring as It's kind of not that exciting. It really isn't. But I got to do what I got to do. All right, this is titled Manipulating the Stock Market. That's, of course, again, where I get the title from this was from the little book of economics, right? Supply and demand. And this is um, manipulating the stock market, manipulating prices. Aren't they, like I said at the outset, I think that they're similar. We might see some similar ideas here. Let's take a look. Manipulating the stock market and how many works. Stock market manipulation can take many forms, such as artificially fixing prices higher or lower with the aim of interfering with the market for personal gain. Hey, there goes that personal gain again. All right, how it works. Well, do tell. A trader can manipulate the market by processing a lot of small sell orders in an attempt to drive down the price of a share. This can cause other shareholders to panic and sell their shares, sending the price down even further. Conversely, a lot of small buy orders may push up a share price to convince other investors that good news is about to be announced. Market manipulation is highly unethical, but not always illegal. Market manipulation is highly unethical, but not always illegal. Interesting. So there we go. There's a good old door into our our wonderful predatory capital practices. Wow. All right. Let's see. Pushing share prices down. It's a little box. Large volumes. If a large investor sells off its stock, prices may fall. I like how they say if a large investor sells off its stock, right? Because an investor doesn't have to be a person, right? It can be an entity of some kind. An entity. You guys ever seen that movie Entity uh, where that lady was being assaulted by some kind of incubus or something like that? And it was supposedly, like a lot of those, based on a true story. And uh, they trapped this thing, the entity, inside. uh, They made a special chamber for it with, I think... uh, Oh, what was it? What is that? Uh, oh my gosh! You would think that I remember this. It's um, liquid nitrogen. Yeah, they they trapped it in in. Um, they used liquid nitrogen to freeze it for a moment, but then it. Well, I'll let you watch the movie. It's the it's called the Entity, and it is from 1982. It's uh, let's take a look online. It says, well, this would be fun. Get an AI-powered overview for this search. Let's see what it says. Generating. The Entity is a 1982 American horror film about a single mother who is... Okay, that's enough. All right, so I'm not going to... That's beyond the topic of this uh, reading and uh, ranting. Okay, so large volumes if a large investor sells off its stock prices may fall because of an increase in supply that same investor can then buy the stock back later at 
a lower price, having locked in profits at the higher price. Hmm. Yes. Short selling. I want to look at that again. So large volume, if, and this is pushing share prices down. So large volume, if a, if a large investor sells off its stock, prices may fall because of an increase in supply. That same investor can then buy the stock back later at a lower price, having locked in profits at the higher price. Oh. Oh. There you go. Pushing share prices down. Remember, market manipulation is highly unethical, but not always illegal. Next is short selling. Rogue traders. What? what? Why do I just think of arr, pirates? Short selling. Rogue traders borrow shares that are sold at a high price. So rogue traders borrow shares that are sold at a high price. Then manipulate the price down so that they can buy the shares back at a lower price to return to the original owner. Interesting. That's what, what the hell? That's really shady. Next, okay, so rogue traders borrow shares that are sold at a high price. You have these high-priced shares. Then manipulate the price down, right? Maybe they start selling them off, like the large volumes did, right, earlier. Then manipulate the price down so they can buy the shares back at a lower price to return to the original owner. Interesting. What? That is pretty shady. All right. Next is bad news. If a company issues a profits warning or a negative report, shares may fall in price. Okay, so those things that pushing share prices down. Those things that are pushing share prices down. All right, we got a puppeteer over here, and uh, each on each of his sleeves, which his shirt is orange, it says trader. And on one side, stage right, which is my left, it says pushing share prices down. Sell, sell now to the market. And then now we got the other side pushing prices up. Buy, go for gold. All right. And let's see what that says. Pushing share prices up. So how do we do that? How do we push share prices up? Stock liquidity. In less liquid stocks, a relatively small number of buy orders can move the price up. In less liquid stocks, a relatively small number of buy orders can move the price up. This makes it easier to exaggerate price movements through manipulative trades, such as pump and dump, where a rogue trader encourages investors to buy shares, pushing the price up so they can then sell their own shares at a high price. Yeah, interesting. All right, so so in less liquid stocks, a relatively small number of buy orders can move the price up. Right, so if this one investor was holding on to it, right, or a trader was holding on to these shares, he could sell a relatively small number or buy a relatively small number of them to make the price goes up. This makes it easier to exaggerate price movements through manipulative trades such as pump and dump. A rogue trader, oh yeah, so where a rogue trader encourages investors to buy shares, pushing up the price, or I'm going to say pumping it, right? Pushing the price up so that they can then sell their own shares 
at a high price. Dump them. Oh, so that's a pump and dump. Okay. Wow. This is real shady. Like, mm, that is fascinating. You never think of these things, right? Unless you're a fucking criminal. Or, well, you don't even have to be a criminal to think about it. I'm sure you can think about these things, but you wouldn't actually do it. We can be criminally minded without being criminal and have crim, you know, without criminal actions. That sucks. And this stuff is done all the time, right? All right, good news. Last thing, last point here is good news. Posting positive information about a company or stock on a bulletin board or an investor chat room can encourage other investors to buy. So I guess that could be one way to pump it up. Pump, 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 pump it up. Pump up the jam, right? So they can pump it up and then dump them later at the higher prices once they hope. Hey, guys, buy this. Start buying it. Prices go up. And meanwhile, they're telling, getting everybody all hyped up about buying it, and they sell it. They dump it and make some money off it. That's, that's real scheming. I mean, how many times can you actually do that and still stick around, like, without people knowing? I don't know. It seems pretty weird to me. All right. Warning. 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 Posting negative or positive information, investors often like to discuss... Okay, yeah. Posting negative or positive information. There should be a period there. Investors often like to discuss shares they own or are thinking of buying with other like-minded individuals on bulletin boards and investment forums. These can be a good source of investment ideas, but they can also be used by unscrupulous traders who post negative or positive information to inflate or deflate prices. All right. And finally, the last box I saved for last for no specific reason, because it's not in any specific order I'm reading these things in this book, because these images are everywhere. It's awesome. It's like a kid's book on that kind of money. All right. The, is it Libor, the LIBOR scandal? It's called L-I-B-O-R. The, uh, the LIBOR, I'll call it LIBOR. The LIBOR scandal. All right, manipulation can affect... Okay. Yeah, Barnes & Noble will be closing in 15 minutes. We know. Make your announcement ready. Yes, we'll bring our selections to the cash wrap. I have way too many selections that have already been bought to the cash wrap long ago, Barnes & Noble. I will not be purchasing anymore. <clears throat> All right, so the, the Libor scandal. Manipulation can affect other areas of the market as well. A recent example is the Libor rigging scandal. Libor is a benchmark rate that banks charge each other for short-term loans and is regarded as an important measure of trust between major global banks. The scandal involved traders at 10 firms, which the UK's serious fraud office, unfortunately, the United Kingdom's calling office, the, the serious fraud office, it's called the serious fraud office. <laughs> it's serious. This fraud is serious. Serious fraud. All right, the scandal involved traders at 10 firms, which the UK's serious fraud office alleged had conspired to manipulate the Labor benchmark between 2006 and 2010 in order to keep it artificially low. Wow. So Labor 
is a benchmark rate that banks charge each other for short-term loans. I never learned about that somewhere before about banks lending money to each other. It's a, the board's a benchmark rate. I'm, I'm assuming they're referring to the interest rate. Right? So the board is a benchmark rate that banks charge each other for short-term loans and is regarded as an important measure of trust between major and global banks. Okay, so again, the scandal involved traders at 10 firms, which the UK's serious fraud office alleged had conspired to manipulate the Labor benchmark between 2006 and 2010 in order to keep it artificially low. Ah, so they're lending it to each other with the interest rates low. Wow, schemey, schemey. So there's basically, they might as well just been passing money back and forth to each other. And they're just keeping the interest rates low. So they're like, hey, buddy, I know you need some money. But uh, we're not going to charge you any high interest. But we're going to have to, we're going to have to manipulate that Labor, that that Gabor rate. All right, well, that's it. That's it for manipulating the stock market in how money works. And that will conclude this edition of Wealth Attraction Research. So, you've been listening to Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, WAR. Manipulating Prices, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Spreaker Social Podcasting, Wisdom Social Audio Inc., and Colin Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club, in association with ExercisingYourMind.com and Uniquilibrium. This edition of Reading Focus came to us from the little book of economics. It's a little cute little book of economics and how money works. Uh, of course, in the little book of economics, we read, or I read, and you probably listened to it a little bit, right? You listen, you know you listen. Prices come from supply and demand and from how many works, manipulating the stock market. And that's why we got the name Manipulating Prices. I got to go. Well, I don't really got to, but I'm going to. I can hide in the bathroom in Barnes and Nobles and hang out here all night and just creep out after they close down and just read all the books that I can. You guys ever seen uh, Charlotte's Web with that mouse, where that rat was running around in like the, the carnival? And it was like, smorgasbord, smorgasbord, smorgasbord. He got all fat and stuffed with food. That's how I'd be inside the bookstore. I'd be like hiding out in here, just getting high on books. All right, I got to go.